are talking today with Robert Epstein and Eliana Baer on FoxCast Legal Listening. Our topic is emancipation, and specifically, what impact it has on the requirement to pay or not to pay child support. Robert and Eliana are attorneys with the firm's New Jersey Family Law Group. They are frequent contributors to the firm's New Jersey Family Legal Blog and help to develop the firm's New Jersey Divorce app for mobile devices. Robert, Eliana, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Every few months, it seems, a news story will emerge about a child or a young adult who is, or considers him or herself to be, emancipated, but who still seeks financial support from the parents in some way. Do you think there is something particular to the millennial generation, or is there something else at play here? There definitely is research out there that supports the theory that many millennials are experiencing more financial challenges than the previous generation. A Pew study from earlier this year noted that the millennial generation is forging a distinctive path into adulthood. They are, according to the survey, the first generation in the modern era to have higher levels of student loan debt, poverty and unemployment, and lower levels of wealth and personal income than the previous two generations, Generation X and the baby boomers, had at the same point in their lives. In many cases, that translates into a greater reliance on their parents for financial assistance. So when the parents are divorced or separated, how does that impact the financial support? Well, when the children are minors or not emancipated, it's mostly clear cut. You have the divorce or separation agreement that clearly stipulates the requirements of child support. In New Jersey, however, emancipation really has become a hot-button issue. Generally, the law provides that a child is emancipated when he or she is no longer within what's called the parental sphere of influence and responsibility. Then it's deemed the conclusion of the fundamental dependent relationship between that parent and the child. Robert, can you elaborate? Uh, what does that specifically mean? Well, there was recently a case decided by the New Jersey Appellate Division that you know, shed some light on this. Uh, in that case, the court reversed the trial court decision emancipating a 20-year-old, 21-year-old son. In this case, emancipation was defined in the settlement agreement between the parties to be whenever which of the following happened first. The completion of uh, five years of college, marriage, permanent residence away from the resident of the primary residential custodial parent, death, entry into the armed forces, or engaging in full-time employment. The agreement also deemed emancipation deferred beyond the child's 23rd birthday, so long as he was pursuing the college education with reasonable diligence and on a normally continuous basis. Under the agreement, the father was required to pay child support until emancipation occurred. There, the county probation department inquired as to whether the son was emancipated for the purpose of child support enforcement. The mother submitted documentation indicating the son was a full-time college student who was also working two part-time jobs, and the department requested a court order for relief of support. After several hearings, the trial court denied the emancipation request from the probation department. On appeal, the appellate division determined a plenary hearing, which is a far more fact-sensitive inquiry, should have been done, and that the trial court based its ruling solely on limited questioning. So the key takeaway here is that whether a child in New Jersey even one who is enrolled in college and working is emancipated is a very fact-specific inquiry that requires a detailed analysis and consideration. Exactly. So what constitutes emancipation and how it's going to be defined cannot be found in a settlement or divorce agreement or limited to one specific detail about the child's life. Courts are going to look at the totality of the situation even if it is addressed in the agreement itself. I recall another recent case uh, in the news involving a parent being forced by the court to pay for his daughter's law school tuition. Uh, are either of you familiar with that case? Yeah, sure we are. Uh, that case was also in New Jersey, and the father was forced to pay in excess of $100,000 for the daughter's, the, for the daughter to attend Cornell Law School. 
In that case, the party's divorce agreement from 2009 clearly indicated that the parents would split the cost of the law school, which is pretty unusual for an agreement, provided that the daughter maintained a C average or above. And this case was particularly interesting also because at the time of the divorce, the daughter had already been emancipated. She and her dad had a falling out after the divorce, and there was no communication regarding the choice of law school for the daughter or the daughter's decision to attend Cornell. Also, she waited about three years after she graduated from college to enroll in the law school, during which time she worked. And Cornell is not an inexpensive law school either. You know what? No law schools are inexpensive at this point in time or undergraduate schools. Uh, in fact, Cornell, from what I recall, is listed at about $77,000 a year uh, for tuition and related fees. And the father, who was a professor at Rutgers University in New Jersey, had offered to pay a portion of the cost for his daughter to attend Rutgers Law School, which is a state law school whose total cost is more than $50,000 a year less than Cornell. Chances are, too, considering she got into Cornell, that the daughter would have received a scholarship at Rutgers, potentially lowering the tuition amount even more. And yet still, the court compelled the father to pay for Cornell, didn't it? Yeah, it, it did. Uh, the trial court ordered him to pay one half of the tuition at Cornell, and the appellate division upheld that in light of the divorce agreement that indicates that the parents would split the cost of law school. And that sort of goes to what we talked about before. The agreement's going to be unambiguous in certain situations. The court's still going to look at the totality of the circumstances. It may have been beneficial in this specific case for the agreement to be more clear as to the terms of the law school tuition payment, maybe discussing the parents' financial situation at the time, uh, equal say by both parents, clearly, which was an issue here in light of the falling out as to which law school the daughter would attend, etc. Thus, while it was probably impractical to plan or is probably impractical to plan for every future possibility when you're entering into a divorce agreement, and it's pretty much impossible uh, that involves child support, these cases definitely bring to light a number of items that need to be considered and that knowledgeable legal counsel should help their clients plan for. Well, thank you, Robert and Eliana. Uh, listeners, to confidentially discuss child support agreements, emancipation issues, or divorce and separation agreements in general, please contact Robert Epstein in Roseland, New Jersey at 973-994-7526 or Eliana Bear in Princeton at 609-895-3344. Fox Rothschild LLP is a full-service law firm built to serve business leaders backed by nearly 600 lawyers coast-to-coast. Our clients come to us because we understand their issues, their priorities, and the way they think. We help clients manage risk and make better decisions by offering practical advice. Visit us on the web at www.foxrothschild.com.